This episode is brought to you by the Lagunitas Brewing Company's Chicago Tap Room and Beer Sanctuary. Come for fresh beer, live music, and killer food Wednesdays through Sundays, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Bring your group and hop on a brewery tour seven days a week. Swing by the Lagunitas Tap Room in Pilsen or find some near you at Lagunitas.com. Life's uncertain. Don't sip. Weird things happen in every state, from macabre deaths and morbid occurrences to regional cryptids and local haints. In my six-plus years of podcasting, I've touched on a couple oddities from my home state of Kentucky. The Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins, the Pope Lake Trestle Goatman, the Beast of Land Between the Lakes, and Edgar Casey come to mind. But I've never delved into a state-specific show on what weirdness Kentucky has to offer. Enter author and fellow Kentuckian Kevin McQueen, who's going to put an end to that right now. You might remember my mention of Kevin during the episode on the Axeman of New Orleans, as it was his book, The Axeman Came From Hell, that most of our research was pulled from. He's gathered a collection of macabre anecdotes and paranormal chicanery from the bluegrass state in his book, Kentucky Book of the Dead. And he joins me to talk about that and other Kentucky strangeness. We also battled the audio from Skype, which was very reticent to cooperate, but we did our best. Oh, the sun shines bright on my odd Kentucky home in this episode of Blurry Photos. Howdy, and welcome to Blurry Photos. I'm your host, David Flora. Got a good show for you, and I'm real excited to jump in because all the great connections I have with our guest. Not only is he an accomplished author and researcher whose work was instrumental in a past episode, he's also just down the road from where I'm from, down in the good old Commonwealth of Kentucky. Specifically from Richmond, Kentucky, Kevin McQueen is a senior lecturer in the English department at Eastern Kentucky University and the author of 17 books concerning topics such as history, biography, the paranormal, ghost stories, natural disasters, and bizarre occurrences he likes to call real-life surrealism. With books like the aforementioned Axemen Came From Hell and the Kentucky Book of the Dead, He's definitely got his feet in many of the buckets we step in here on Blurry Photos. It's my pleasure to welcome Kevin McQueen to the show. Kevin, welcome, and thank you for making time to talk with us tonight. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's my pleasure. Uh, why don't we start out by getting to know you a little bit, and maybe you can tell me and the listeners, in your own words, uh, about yourself, about the works you've published, um, maybe how you got into the writing about these wonderful, bizarre topics, stuff like that. Um, well, thank you. Um, as you mentioned, I am a, a teacher. I uh, am an instructor at Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond. I've been a published author since 2001, so that averages out to about a book a year or so wow. uh, from a variety of publishers. The last few have been through Indiana University Press. Is it easy to, to go from publisher to publisher? Is that a, a common thing for, for writing books, or is it dependent on the topic? I think a lot of it depends on the topic. Hmm. Uh, several of the more history-based ones came from History Press, now known as Arcadia Press. Mm -hmm. 
And um, from the books that uh, you've got out there, uh, a lot of stuff is is centering around the Midwest and and stuff. So it's it's very cool. All the kinds of the topics that you're covering. Uh, obviously, you you sent me a couple books, and I really appreciate that. I'm wondering what uh, what influenced your fascination of of these uh, topics. So people ask that a lot, and I really have no good answer. It, it's strangely enough, I've always been interested in these things as far back as I can recall, and I really have no idea where it came from. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a favorite of these topics to research? Just history in general, because if you really look into history, a lot of these topics just sort of present themselves by accident. Mm-hmm. It's it's very fun to go into the historical um, topics. Uh, I've done quite a few on the show, and especially there's I, there's really no shortage of ones that uh, can be, I, I guess, termed bizarre or uh, they're, they're just a little bit more fascinating than just say this battle was fall here, blah, blah, blah. You know, like there's a lot of really cool historical stuff. And then, of course, you've got the side of it where some people try to take that history and then make it something more than it was too. You know, um, I'm thinking of, I don't know if you've heard of Phantom Time. Have you heard of that uh, that conspiracy? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, basically, it's some s- group of guys got together and, and said, you know what, uh, based on what we have studied in history, there was about 800 years or 600 years, something like that, uh, around the year 800 that never existed uh, so we're actually like living in the, I don't know, 1300s or I, I forget now, but like, <laughs> it's, oh, that's, that's really weird. It's, it's pretty before. out there. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see their evidence. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I would too. I think a lot of the world would like to see that evidence. <laughs> they might have it. Somehow I doubt it though. Yeah. Well, they've, they've got their version of it. Um, which I think comes up quite a bit in this kind of stuff. But yeah, history is a pretty uh, rich and fun topic to pull from. So I'm with you on that one. So having researched, um, you know, topics myself, I was curious what your approach uh, is. And um, I saw on your website the, some of the ways you go about it, um, like newspapers, you know, going to places for the info and stuff. Uh, but you say that going over microfilm has really paid dividends. Is that right? Yes, it really has. Because you get all of these really strange little stories that nobody else knows about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find things on newspapers.com and internet no- newspapers, but I find those really help you only if you know exactly what you're looking for to begin with. Mm-hmm. The way I do it, I just go through old papers issue by issue, kind of uh, the way Charles Fort used to do it. Oh, yeah. And I make, and make a note on what sounds like a good story worth researching in more detail. And uh, as a result, you find what you're looking for usually, but you also find a lot of things you're not looking for. And <laughs> those are sometimes the very best things. Yeah. And that sounds like a very time-consuming but rewarding work, too. Well, it takes a lot of time. You really have to be patient. <laughs> so, And you said, and this may have, may have been updated since then, but you were going through like old um, Louisville Courier journals and got up to about, what, 1930s? Uh, about to the end of 1939. Yeah, wow. 
That's pretty amazing. And like you said, you find stuff you're not even looking for in... Uh, Sometimes, though, you find alternative versions of already fairly well-accepted stories. Oh, that's got to be pretty exciting. Do you find that those uh, corroborate a lot of stuff, or do they uh, are they different angles to the same story that might have uh, weird new stuff? They usually don't totally contradict. Usually they just sort of supplement what you've already heard, but always with extra details. Yeah. Huh. So maybe I'm getting ahead of myself on, on some of the, the questions, but it's sparking uh, a lot of thought from me here. Do you, do you find a lot of stuff you would call sensational in there as in terms of like some of these ghost stories and things, or is it more, is, is it more grounded? Um, the language is more grounded. I think. It's more highly educated, uh, larger words, very uh, many allusions to literature. But the taste or sensation never changes. <laughs> so yeah. uh, people 100, 150 years ago loved a good murder story in the papers every bit as much as we do. So I, I think the language has changed, the use of language, but not so much the interest in it. I think that's a loss for us. <laughs> I kind of miss that heightened language a little bit. I think you're definitely right about that. Uh, it's so much fun to read the old newspapers and see the language people used. Uh, very often we see old novels where people speak in this very decorous way, and we say, well, surely people didn't really speak like that. But if you read the newspapers and old newspaper interviews and court transcripts, you see that people really did speak that way. Yeah, and like I said, again, it's it's kind of a loss to us because now we're you know trying to shorten words as much as we can so we can get more out there and blah blah blah. When you when you teach, you definitely notice these things. <laughs> do you see that a lot in papers and stuff? I do, and in fact, a couple of years ago, something happened that I really had been dreading for years. I, I knew it would happen one day, and it finally did. Somebody put a a little smiley face in a research paper. Oh, <laughs> in a research paper. <laughs> I didn't uh, know what to do. I, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Oh, that's true. Oh, man. <laughs> I did both at the same time. I mean, yeah, just uh, talking casually to somebody's one thing, but uh, get a little... Get a little wink in your bibliography. That's uh, <laughs> a wink of all things. You're right. <laughs> That's too bad. Uh, well, um, it, it sounds fun. I always find when, when I'm researching the topics and I'm trying to go at old newspapers and things, first of all, like you said, is spot on. Uh, you have to know exactly what you're looking for. It helps to know uh, the exact date of what you're looking for was, was mentioned and the exact paragraph and page number. <laughs> like, it's hard to go through and find find what you... So uh, you, you really happened upon quite a bit of cool stuff that you've pulled out of these newspapers, especially in Kentucky Book of the Dead. And I'm, I'm assuming you got a lot of that from the, the newspapers that you were reading. Is that correct? I think almost all of it did. Yeah. There's a bibliography in the back, and most of it came from the Courier-Journal. Yeah. Now, you're wrong, too, by the way, that uh, the online papers are good if you have sort of an idea of the date mm -hmm. of what you're looking for. But if you don't really know the date... Not really that much help. Yeah, yeah. One good thing about going through the old papers, you can find specific dates for almost anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point, 
I guess the technology has got to be good enough to where if you just want to search for keywords, that'll come about, you know, to where it'll, it'll help you with that, the, the digging at least. I think they have something like that these days, but it's not as robust as maybe, uh, you know, we would like it to be, I don't think. Yeah, I know the technology is pretty good and it's getting better, but I really think no matter how good it gets, I'm always going to prefer microfilms simply because you find all these things by accident. Yeah. You, know, you get all these old advertisements and things, and it's oh, amazing yeah. what you can learn just simply by looking at old ads. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Do you do you ever get out much to some of these places or um I know I know uh, kind of a tongue in cheek you don't spend as much time in graveyards as you as people might think um but do you ever go out to any and and just kind of you know walk amongst the the graves look for some of these epitaphs and stuff like that I do when I get a chance uh, usually usually if you find something really good it's totally by accident mm-hmm but I, I wish I had the time and the money to actually go to a specific place and look for something like that. Unless it's fairly close, I usually don't have time to. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's a ton of stuff just in Richmond alone that uh, that would be that's fun to check out, especially haunted places. There are. Some of them are not open to the public, but at least one of them is open to the public. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I'll swing back to that uh, in a little bit because it's, that's one of the more uh, fascinating things so far that I've read. But um, in your research, I was wondering if you have noticed any patterns to any of the topics that you uh, explore. And, you know, for an example, anything about locations or commonalities between cases or maybe behaviors or environmental factors or anything like that. Uh, I look for things like that, but I don't really think I've found anything. Mm-hmm. I know that some researchers have found interesting connections like that with these hauntings do you get a lot of repeat activities between cases um not too many that i've noticed a lot of these are just sort of what i'd call one-off incidents that happen uh they're reported in a newspaper there's often no follow-up and you don't know what happened next Mm. Uh, but with the one place that i actually did have personal experience with a place called whitehall that I mentioned in Kentucky Book of the Dead, I did notice patterns. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did notice where uh, sort of incidents led to other incidents. Now, so that's that's interesting. Let's talk about um, that in the Kentucky Book of the Dead a little bit, which I enjoyed very much. Because uh, it's, it's just chock full of macabre anecdotes revolving around death in the bluegrass state, um, including ghost stories, unfortunate ends, and intriguing epitaphs. Uh, just to give our listeners a, a little idea of what it's about. And great illustrations by Kyle McQueen. That would be my twin brother. I always tell my students about him and they never believe that he exists, but he really <laughs> does. <laughs> and next book will be illustrated by your Canadian girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so did anything in particular inspire the Kentucky Book of the Dead? I wanted to write a paranormal, supernatural book about Kentucky, a lot of good humor with a lot of good stories that hadn't been told before. And what really inspired it was simply working at Whitehall. I thought, oh, I could tell this story, and there are so many others, too. Hmm. And going through all the old newspapers, because I had all these obituaries on people who died in bizarre ways, and all these stories about embalming, and that sort of thing. And I thought, this really needs to be collected. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad you thought that. That's a good idea. <laughs> and, and since you mentioned working at, at Whitehall, which is um, a supposedly haunted old home there in near Richmond, Kentucky, uh, can you give us a, a quick flyby of your experience there and any weird stuff that you encountered? Well, I was a guide there for several years, and uh, not just myself, but several other employees saw and heard things there, mostly heard things. Uh, visual visual things were kind of rare, although a few people did see things. Uh, what, what made it very interesting to me in particular, it wasn't often a case where just one person would sense something, but more than one person at a time, which is a lot harder to explain away, I think, than mm-hmm. if one person sees or hears something. Mm-hmm. We actually had some cases where the guide and even the people on the tours would see the same thing. Uh, I remember a couple of those are apparitions or, or things that disappeared eventually into a door or through a door. And the thing that I took away from the book that was uh, pretty fascinating was you, you mentioned that it always seems like people didn't know they were looking at a ghost that it, it seemed flesh and blood until it just went through a door or something. Yeah, that happened more than once. And even sometimes the tour guides, who you'd think would uh, really be a, what was going on, even they were fooled sometimes. A lot of the tourists would just see a person in an old costume and they assumed it was another guide. Yeah, yeah. And that that's another um, kind of telltale uh, about some of these stories is they're all... Uh, these these apparitions were in that um, period clothing, and I, I thought it was fascinating. I'm jumping the gun, but um, when I get to it here in a little bit, I want to ask you about the the Stockton House ghost. Um, oh yeah, because that one's a great one, and uh, and one that sounded like it changed clothes from what people saw from you know one experience to another, which I thought was completely baffling and fascinating. Yeah, that's that's a good story. For and so uh, to stick with Whitehall for a bit. So you worked there, and what kind of weird stuff did you encounter that maybe you can't easily explain away? <laughs> well, it's uh, interesting you should say that. We were pretty a pretty incredulous bunch actually working there. So whenever something was visualized, whenever we heard something, whenever we smelled something out of the ordinary, we would try to check it out and look for natural explanations. And much of the time we could find something, but often we could not. Hmm. Uh, Sometimes people smelled burning candles. Mm -hmm. And of course, it being an old historical house, there are no burning candles in the house ever. Right. We would smell perfume, and it didn't smell like modern perfume at all. It was very old-fashioned, like something you would imagine your grandmother or great-grandmother wearing. Hmm. Uh, These scents would just suddenly come out of nowhere, and they would stay in a localized area. They wouldn't really spread the way you would expect it to. And then it would just disappear like someone had switched off, a, uh, turned off a switch. <laughs> Little odd things like that. Um, once I saw one of the velvety guide ropes swinging really, really, really hard. And once it stopped, I did a little science experiment. I gave it a good hard swing myself to see if it would rock back and forth like that. But after only a couple of rocks, it would stop. Hmm. So what was making it swing like that, I don't know. Wow. I think it's particularly interesting that uh, a lot of the stuff that happened, it sounds like it it affected more than just one or two senses. Like you're talking of uh, uh, smell and just the feeling of stuff. And 
whereas some people are seeing the apparitions come through, some people are hearing uh, things going on, you know, one one thing at a time or something like that. But it's not often you you get, you know, all the senses working in a place like that. And with this one in particular, in Whitehall, just a brief history, that was built by uh, Cassius M. Clay, is that right? Yes. Can you tell us just a, a little bit about uh, him and the, the history of that? So the older part of the house is called Claremont, and it was built by his father, Green Clay, in the 1790s. And in the 1860s, Cassius Clay and his wife decided to expand it. They built around it and on top of it. So the new section dates from the 1860s. And uh, he was an emancipationist, one of the very few who actually lived in the South. And as a result, he was constantly in fights and duels. So he lived a very interesting, very violent life. It's uh, amazing to me that he isn't more well-known and that no one's made a movie about him. I wonder if... um if the, the more recent Cassius Clay has kind of eclipsed the name a little bit. I think so. Uh, he, he actually was named after this Cassius Clay. Was he? Because, yeah. because of the emancipationist uh, uh, background? His... Probably so. Uh, we weren't sure. From Louisville. Mm-hmm. So Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, is indeed a Kentuckian himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, very often, people would come to the house, Whitehall, and they actually thought he lived there. And they'd be very disappointed when we'd have to tell them, sorry, no, this is not Muhammad Ali's house. <laughs> still still a uh, you know person with, with violence around them, I guess you could say, but not the right one. <laughs> yeah, a different sort of violence. <laughs> that's, and that's interesting. So they, they built onto this. And so for the, I don't, I don't know if I want to say majority of uh, these experiences, do the majority, let's just say, uh, happen in Claremont portion, or is it all over, including the, the new parts and everything? Pretty well all over the house. I can't think of any places in the house where something strange didn't happen. Mm-hmm. There's one area in particular that uh, we were talking about patterns. One place in particular, just listening to people's accounts, uh, writing down what they said, reading old news stories, it seemed to have the most incidents happening. Uh, that's an area, it's in the older section of the house, and it's sort of a hallway where there is a water closet and a sink and a bathtub, which at the time in the 1860s, indoor plumbing was an extremely rare thing. And I have no idea why, but the bedroom and the hallway in that set seems to have most things happening there. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, that was what you were referring to as the powder room in the book, is that right? Uh, the powder room is downstairs. Oh, it's, it's different. Room, okay. So yeah. Yeah. It's not on the tour. That's what we call it. We think maybe it was, a, there's a ballroom downstairs. We think perhaps that people waited in the powder room before going to the ballroom, but it's the room where the tour guides would, would hang out in between tours. I see. I see. It's underneath a spiral staircase. And uh, now that I think about it, the section I just referred to with the three rooms is actually in the newer section of the house. Oh, hmm. rather than the older section. And is there um, is there a going theory as to who might be uh, causing the 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 stuff going on there? Um, visual apparitions are pretty rare there. They have seen a man, at least two men actually. They have seen a boy. Uh, 
adolescent boy, perhaps in his early teens, who we think possibly might be Clay's son, Warfield. And there has been a woman cited a number of times, hmm. the old lady. We're not really sure who that is. Mm-hmm. Possibly Clay's wife, Mary Jane Clay. Hmm. Interesting. But um, has anybody ever thought they saw Cassius himself? There was an occasion where they saw a large man downstairs in the basement in front of the uh, uh, one of the cellar doors. And Clay was a very large person. for He was six feet tall, possibly a little more than six feet. And they've heard a man's voice very often, a, a disembodied voice. But I guess there's no real way to tell whose voice that is. Hmm. That's a, that's a good segue into uh, the Stockton House ghost, um, which uh, you, you talk about later in the book which uh, has tons of witnesses and weird coincidences. So Whitehall uh, is the one that's open to the public, but the Stockton House one is not. Is that right? Yes, it's a private residence. In fact, in the book, I'm quite vague about where it's located. <laughs> right. On purpose. That one, it basically, in the, in the book, you, you follow along with one family that lived there for about a decade, wasn't it? Yeah, they lived there from the early early 80s till, oh, I think it was about the late 90s. Man, and they had a lot of stuff and learned to live with whatever they, they were experiencing there, which is cool. And I, <laughs> it's one of those classic stories of they notice something, stuff starts happening, and then one day the guy's up in the attic and finds a, a portrait of a lady hangs it in the dining room and then stuff stuff settles down a little bit and, and gets a little bit nicer for them. Is that, is that kind of, am I on the right track with that? Yes, it is. Uh, when they moved in, they noticed that something kept rearranging the furniture and taking baskets off the walls. <laughs> uh, the portrait's really pretty frightening, isn't it? That's a scary looking <laughs> mom. I love, I love your description, though, of uh, the throw mama from the train <laughs> actor. <laughs> It does. That was the only person I could think of who she resembled. <laughs> it looks. It looks exactly like the lady from, uh, uh, yeah, Throw Mama from the Train and uh, the Goonies. She was in that wearing, too. Yeah. Yeah, wearing widow's weeds <laughs> to make right. it even creepier. But that that one that ghost is the one that um, I think you said uh, some people saw her in like dark clothing, and then at other times they saw her in a white gown. Is that right? Yeah, and one person saw her wearing a hat. If yeah. I remember, I don't remember now if it was a black hat with a white stripe or a white hat with a black stripe, mm-hmm. but she wore a hat on at least one occasion. And of course, uh, the first time the man of the house ever saw her was in widow's weeds, funeral clothing. Yeah. So strange. And plus the, um, the very creepy, uh, aspect of a child, uh, being able to see, <laughs> to see her at, at one point. And you you even point out, or maybe the family pointed out, that they never mentioned her to the child, right? And and then the right. child just brings up the fact that there's a, a what did he call it, a witch at the top of the a stairs? Witch. Yeah, yeah, a witch of the stairs. He was afraid that she would break his toy. <laughs> so that was a really eerie story. I'm I'm really quite proud. That one. Uh, most of the stories that I do come from old newspapers, but the Whitehall stories came from experiences uh, of my experiences and some friends I had who worked there. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the Stockton House, I actually got to interview the family. Mm. That story always struck me as especially interesting because he saw the ghost 
first time, uh, if I recall, a month or two after they moved in, he just woke up and saw her standing near the foot of the bed in those funeral clothes, uh, muttering something in a very deep voice <laughs> about going to a funeral. Uh, creepy enough. And then a month or so later, he found the painting of her. So the thing I think is interesting, if he found the painting first, you could always say, well, he saw this frightening face in a painting and it, it got into his subconscious and he dreamed he saw her. Yeah. But he actually before he found the painting, which was something his wife pointed out to me. She said that he described the ghost to her several weeks before he actually found the painting. Hmm. That's amazing. So, so the family was happy to to share the experience with you and everything. Yes, they were they were uh, they 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 had some great stories. Hmm. Uh, I even spoke with the boy who, at the time he saw the ghost, was very small, just barely able to talk. When I interviewed him, he was maybe fourteen, fifteen, but he remembered it. He remembered seeing her. Wow. And one interesting thing uh, you brought up was that she would mostly just appear to the males in the house. Is that right? Yeah, um, as many years as they lived there, the woman of the family never saw her. She saw evidence of her being there, the rearranged furniture, that sort of thing. Uh, I believe one time a whole party of people saw the drawers of a cupboard opening and closing, which again to me is a very interesting thing if a number of people see it at once. Yeah, uh, She never actually saw the ghost. As far as uh, they knew, only one woman ever actually saw her. Yeah, and and there is a there's a fair number of these stories that you talk about in the book where you have a good number of witnesses to this weird uh activity, these these bizarre goings on. And um, you know, you get often in this you get a lot of one person experiences this and then runs and tells people about it. Yeah, well, that's that's great, but then you get a whole tour group seeing things or a whole like dinner party seeing something happen. And of course, like, you know, with, with many of the stuff, well, it's, it's an anecdote, but <laughs> you yeah, know, it's true. I mean, it's all anecdotal, but it's really not the kind of thing that you can duplicate. Right. Right. So it's this really, it comes down to, do you believe the people or not? Exactly. And I find stories are very convincing if told by people who have no real for telling it yeah and and that's uh that's something that that we've brought up on the show before like is there an end to this you know that that they're searching for is there a a point they're trying to make you know a lot of times you'll have people trying to make money off of stuff but if you just got people telling the story and saying i don't know what it is i'm just sharing the story that's you know that lends some credence to it in itself if you if you talk to a lot of people about this you quickly pretty quickly realize who's a believable witness and who isn't. Mm -hmm. So uh, when doing research on the Whitehall chapter, uh, many of the times tourists or guides would witness things who they weren't really looking for ghosts. The creepiest thing that happened to me there, I wasn't thinking about ghosts at all. I was, had something else entirely on my mind. And we had uh, some people who worked there saw a ghost or heard a ghost every time they went in the house. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of develop a skeptical idea that maybe they're seeing things because they really, really want to. Mm -hmm. And I found their stories a lot less believable than people who are just minding their own business and uh, just even 
parents who aren't expecting anything at all and they still saw or heard something. Yeah. That's why I think it's, it's fascinating that people see the things that aren't transparent. They're not, you know, missing feet or floating or something. They look like actual people and then they just go through a wall and that, you know, that's not something you hear often in these, these cases, you know, usually there's an element of, uh, uh, some kind of ghost-like quality, like someone seeing the librarian in Ghostbusters or something, you know what I mean? Right, right. So, yeah, that's very fascinating. It is. A lot of the people who reported seeing things said that they weren't frightened at the time. <laughs> they only got frightened later when they realized that what they saw they really couldn't or shouldn't have been seeing. Right. I, I have uh, regret frights. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's a good way to put it. The, the Stockton house one too, uh, had an element of, if I, if I'm remembering correctly, had an element of, there was a psychic involved as well, right? That, that the family visited to, to ask some advice from. Yes, there was. Hmm. Most of the time you kind of hear psychic and the eyeballs start rolling, but like this one had some, uh, pretty spot on takes with, uh, with this ghost, right? Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical most of the time when I hear about psychics, mm -hmm. but this one was pretty right on the money about some things. Mm. So again, a lot of it is a matter of who's who's really believable, who's telling a believable story, um, who is seems to believe everything they see is ghostly, yeah, or strange. You you can kind of weed out the people who are good witnesses, and bad ones. Do you know if, so that, that family has since moved out, has, have there been many residents since then, or has it been very few? Do you, do you have any idea? Have you kept up? Unfortunately, I have no idea what happened in the house after they left. I do know that uh, about 10 years ago, it was up for sale, and hmm. I actually entered it. There was no way in the world I could have afforded it, <laughs> but I wanted to see it because I hadn't seen it in so long. And it looked exactly the way I remembered it. But the interesting thing is that the painting of the woman was still on the wall. Oh, well. So evidently they decided that needs to stay up permanently. <laughs> Even if the place was empty, it was still there. Probably a, a smart move, or at least um, might as well. <laughs> I think so. Why take a chance? Exactly. Oh, that's funny. I got to... Got to ask about this, since you write about these topics and stuff. Um, do you often have people that come to you wanting to debunk these stories or not really? Not really. Uh, I think it may be just the way that I tell the stories are kind of told with a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And this is another reason I think uh, my listeners will, it would enjoy uh, reading your works is you've, you've got a great dry sense of humor uh, when you write. And uh, I really, I really do appreciate that when you're going through there. When you uh, cover these stories, when you find them and stuff, do you do you find yourself trying to? Uh, uh, I mean, debunk is such a. I don't know. It's it's got connotations these days, and I hate <laughs> using it. You know yeah. what I mean? But do you find yourself kind of trying to explain things as you're reading? Kind of them? a negative negative tone to it. it, it I think it does. Sometimes yeah, I do. Uh, some of those stories I tell are are. They're just sort of tongue-in-cheek. I don't really take them seriously myself. Sometimes I'll point out a sort of an absurdity in the story. It's a 
for all I know, it happened. For all I know, it didn't. Just tell it and have a little fun with it. Yeah. Uh, most of my ghost stories are on the funny side. I think the Stockton story stands out because it's actually more frightening than funny. It, you may be right. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there's a there was a lot to uh, to that one and the Whitehall one too. You know, so there's extra invested in it. I think, which uh, makes them stand out a little bit, but. I mean, we keep talking about these stories. Would you mind regaling us with one of the ones from the book? Oh, I would be very pleased to. Let me find one that isn't not too terribly long, and I will read it. Sure. I'll give a dramatic reading of this. Uh, so from the Kentucky Book of the Dead, this is one of the ones that uh, it's a little more eerie than amusing. Uh, you were mentioning hoaxes and things. Sometimes I'll actually find evidence of a hoax in a ghost story, and if I do find the evidence, I'll mention it. But this was one that was a little harder to explain. Uh, the title is A Shy Ghost in Blue. Some ghosts make regular rounds in their old haunts for years, even centuries. Louisville attorney P. Humphrey had a ghost haunt his house at 920 Avenue for one day only. But it was a mighty interesting day. One more. In June 1902, Mrs. Humphrey awoke to see a pale girl with blue eyes and blonde hair standing next to her bed. The girl's out-of-style blue dress seemed somehow familiar to Mrs. Humphrey, though her face did not. When the lawyer's wife sat up, the girl disappeared. Mrs. Humphrey said, nothing of the apparition to her family, thinking it only a dream. But that evening, as the family sat on the front porch, the girl in blue entered the maid's third-floor room. The maid, assuming the stranger was a visitor who'd lost her way, said, All the families on the front porch. The girl said nothing, but bowed and left the room, closing the door as she exited. Minutes later, a guest named Epi Prather nearly ran into the strange girl in the second floor hallway at the top of the stairs. Prather thought the girl seemed confused and asked if she was looking for Mr. Humphrey's daughter, Mary Churchill. The girl silently nodded and smiled. As Prather said, she's down on the front porch. The girl in blue bowed, smiled again, and went downstairs. At that point, she vanished, seemingly forever. No one saw her leave the house, and it appears no one has ever seen her again. The mystery deepened a few days later when the family commenced packing for a trip to the country. While doing so, Mrs. Humphrey chanced to look into old, long-forgotten trunks. At the bottom of one, she found an antiquated blue dress. She and Miss Prather and the maid all recognized it as the same garment worn by the silent, shy ghost. Man, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I love about that. The ghost interacted with people. When they told her <laughs> something, she acknowledged that she heard it you know, smiled, bowed, and then, uh, and then took off. And then, and like that to me is, is really fascinating because you always hear about ghosts that just either seem like they don't know or care that you're there or they, they just do their thing and then disappear. So that one's fun. Well, this one's kind of interesting for two reasons that we were just talking about, which is, she seemed like a real little girl and no one thought of her as a ghost mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Also the fact that at least three people saw her. 
So it isn't one of those cases where one person sees something and you can either believe it or not. This is a case where three people saw the same thing and their descriptions all checked out. Mm -hmm. And then it's got that, um, uh, the, a little bit, just like in the Stockton house where they find the dress after the fact that matches up. Oh, very true. So that's, that's pretty cool too. Yeah. It's like an interesting coda at the end of the story. They, Three people see the ghost, it doesn't speak, it disappears, they don't know where it went, but then later they found her dress. And so that one took place in Louisville, you said? That was in Louisville. That comes from a chapter uh, in which all the stories were Louisville stories. Huh, yeah. Interesting. Automatic uh, creepy points with it being about a, a, a child anyway, but... <laughs> yeah, and a quiet one, too. Yeah, one that doesn't talk. disturbing, you know, a ghost that says something or a ghost that doesn't say yeah. something. The, the most frightening aspect, a polite child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, it was 1903, so... <laughs> That's right. There were That's probably right. more polite children then. More polite children who, who spoke in heightened language. Those were the days. Um, <laughs> as as mentioned, you, you include a number of bizarre ways people shook their mortal coils, as it were. Many are unfortunate. Many are grisly. Uh, but do you have, and I, I hesitate to say favorite, but do you have one that stands out for you of ways that people came to an untimely end? Well, there is one in the book everyone seems to bring up. At book signings or whatever I give speeches. Oh, let me I see think, if I can guess. Oh, yeah. Is is it? Oh, there's two. <laughs> there's two <laughs> I think of. Uh, the first one I would say would be the guy that was seesawed off the cliff. And then the second would be the guy with the chamber pot. Is it either of those? Neither of those. But oh. those pretty good aren't they <laughs> the first wild. is like a wily e. coyote cartoon kind of life the guy sitting on a log and a tree hits the other side of the log and flips him through the air and he lands on his head at the bottom of the cliff oh jeez, what a way wily e. coyote like story he just, he, he just i don't know it leaves me speechless yeah wondering if someone would do it but he was blowing up dynamite and he had one stick that didn't go off so he walked over and picked it up and looked at it, and then it went off, exactly oh. like in a Wiley e. Coyote car. <laughs> yeah, except that he didn't end up with just a blackened and charred face. He probably ended up with exactly. no face. <laughs> I would, yeah. It's funnier in the cartoon. <laughs> it's funny, yeah. The Chamberpot story you mentioned is a, a really grisly one, if it's the one that I have in mind. Uh, somebody, he went into a seizure, and he, well, he... His head ended up in the chamber pod. Yeah. Yeah. Stuck. What made it interesting to me was the account said he either stifled or drowned, oh. which when you think about it, it means he either suffocated in number two or he drowned in number one. Right. Oh, what a way, what a way to go. So the, was it the dynamite one that you said people bring up a lot? No, the one that I was thinking of, and I think the publisher must have liked it because they put it right on the cover to get your attention. Allow me to read it out loud. This is from the Louisville, it's a Louisville Courier Journal obituary from October 22nd, 1899, and it reads as follows. Glasgow, Kentucky, October 21st. 
Luther Johnson, a young farmer living in the south part of this county, blew into the muzzle of a shotgun early this morning to see if it was loaded. It was. <laughs> and that was Jeez. all it was to the obituary. Oh my gosh. <sighs> yeah, that that one, you couldn't think of a better <laughs> obit than that, I think. <laughs> it pretty much gives an idea what the flavor of the entire book is like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, some of these uh, might be hard uh, for some people to, to stomach, but... Um, it, for the most part, they're just, they're, they're fascinating. And it's one of those things. If you ever wondered, there's probably a worse way to die. Or if, or if you didn't know if there was a worse way to die, a lot of these probably can take that cake for you. <laughs> it's really grisly stuff to be sure, but that's why I try to write it in a sort of upbeat, lighthearted way to sort of take the edge off of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we were talking about history and really history is like you say, it's battles and great events, but it's also small events. Mm -hmm. And I've always maintained that you can learn a lot about history just from reading this sort of thing about what people thought and what they did attitudes and that sort of thing that's true and and how they uh wrote about it the language and the tone that they used i guess that could uh, play into it as well yeah the obituaries are especially interesting uh, we always think of them as being very squeamish in those days and they were very squeamish on certain subjects but they weren't squeamish about violence <laughs> so if somebody committed suicide you can always guarantee the newspaper account extremely graphic Wow. They'll describe where every single droplet of blood landed. <laughs> but watch out if they're talking about showing those ankles. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're very careful about that. They always say limbs in place of legs, but mm. they're not a bit shy about telling you where the, where the brain landed when somebody shot himself in the head. <laughs> so there's something for people to wonder about and try to figure. And that's... um. That's also a, a segue, because uh, I was reading one of your other books, um, Horror in the Heartland, which has a, a bounty of weird stories from here around the, the Midwest, where I am currently. And there are, there are a ton of bizarre ways that people have chosen to uh, commit suicide. And one of the, I mean, one of the weirdest through lines that I kept seeing in, in the different accounts that you uh, present was some very elaborate ways to do it. And I'm thinking of the one guy who, uh, not to get too graphic for the, the, the listener, but uh, the one guy who was like, drew a scalding hot bath, rigged up the, uh, a noose oh. and the shotgun and a knife. Like, he was going to make sure. <laughs> yeah, right? He was going to make sure yeah, that he didn't he, make any mistakes. I wish I'd counted. It's something he killed himself in about seven or eight different ways at the same time. Yeah. Creepy, yeah, it's weird, yes, but at the same time, I submit the sheer overkill of it's actually kind of funny in a dark sort of way. Yeah, yeah, a, a very, very morbid uh, sense of humor, and I like the pun there with overkill. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. An interesting thing to consider about humor, for that matter, uh, at what point does something tragic turn into something actually sort of funny in a way? Yeah. Where does start becoming amusing yeah that's that is uh that that would be a hard question to try to answer because you also have to take into consideration how long it's been since it happened how connected to it you are <laughs> that has a lot to do with it i think yeah uh, 
sort of thing happened last week, nobody would be writing, you know, lighthearted things about it. But if it happened a hundred years ago, right? Like they say, comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's that's where a, a lot of this lands. And I don't think it's uh, you know the humor comes out of laughing at people or their misfortunes or what drove them to it. it it's just like in that situation, it's it's the the circumstances. Like why why the overkill? Why was there seven different ways you right. you know wanted to do that? Like that's kind of absurd. It's it's an absurd kind of laugh at. So. That's a good question, yeah, very though. Surreal and very absurdist, and I think maybe the humor is not in the act, but in the description of the act. Right. That you take something really dreadful, but you describe it in sort of a funny way. I think maybe that's the key to it. It yeah, it certainly I try helps. Not to analyze too much. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and try not to focus on too much on the the macabre nature. Like you said, it's it's. It's all in uh, the light of trying to just present these bizarre things and kind of just be like, wow, that happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if, you, if you overanalyze it, you can't do it anymore. Yeah, then it, then it, be, gets, it gets too real. So I, When it comes to writing. <laughs> um, but speaking of, of horror in the heartland, you have graciously recommended one for me to read here for our listeners. Uh, so I can get that going here for us. And this one, this one takes place in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio, and is entitled Dry Goods Ghost. Weatherby's was one of the finest dry goods stores in mid to late 19th century Cincinnati. Located on the northwest corner of Fifth and Vine Streets, the Emporium rose a majestic, for the time, four stories but there may have been more in the building than clerks and fabrics. A man once hanged himself in a third-floor room, and the place was said to be haunted. A squad of seamstresses worked the night shift on the second floor, and they were so troubled by unnatural noises that several declared they would never return to the building after dark, even if the refusal should cost them their jobs. Their grim determination was the aftermath of an incident that took place on the night of November 8, 1888, when the store was closed and locked tight, except for the women working on the second floor and their foremen. Around 8 o'clock, the workers heard the sound of heavy footsteps on the floor above them, which they knew was unoccupied. It wasn't experienced by merely one imaginative person. They all heard it and stopped sewing. That's queer, said one. Who can be up there? The seamstress's surprise turned into nervousness when the steps slowly came down the stairs leading to the room that was their workstation. Then the footsteps stopped, and only a closed door separated the women from whatever made the noise. Their nervousness turned into mounting panic when the doorknob rattled violently as though an impatient person on the other side demanded entrance. The foreman swung the door open. No one was there. He closed it, and then everyone heard the heavy footsteps ascending the stairs. The foreman opened the door again, but could see no one walking up into the darkness of the third floor. The foreman 
who certainly earned his wages that night, got a light and investigated the third floor. He found nothing unusual, but as soon as he returned to the sewing room, the performance was repeated. Something crossed the floor overhead, walked deliberately down the stairs, and shook the doorknob. But then that something added an extra attraction. From behind the closed door came the sound of gurgling, gasping, strangling. The foreman yanked the door open, but no one stood in the doorway. That was all the working girls would take. They would take no more. Their natural fear of the numinists overcame them. They tumbled over each other and practically levitated downstairs to the safety of the first floor, leaving behind unfinished work and the poor foreman, who had no one to comfort him as he extinguished the gas lights all by himself. His duties done, he too wasted no time getting downstairs. A Cincinnati correspondent for the St. Louis Republic asked the foreman the next day if he thought he had encountered an actual revenant of the dead in the mundane setting of a dry goods store. It's certain there's nothing human but myself in that third floor room last night after six o'clock, he replied. I opened the door both times while the knob was yet turning. If it wasn't a ghost, what was it? What was it, Kevin? What do you think? I have no idea. <laughs> it's just one of those things, you know, you wish you could have been there to see it. You just uh, have to read the account and either take it as it is or disbelieve it. But again, notice this is a case where not just one person, but a great many people witnessed what was going on. Yep, yep. And I, I tell you what, I hope that guy ran for mayor because uh, he'd have my <laughs> vote. <laughs> Me too. What bravery. Right? <laughs> I don't think I could have done it. No. I mean, it, that surely would have been a hard thing. <laughs> Especially for it to happen twice. That's unusual. Well, yeah. I mean, that's interesting too. Once is creepy enough. Twice is even worse. Yeah. And and, and like you said, all the witnesses and, and everything, that's, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one too. But these books that you got, they're, they're just chock full of these cool stories like this. And this one in, in particular, this came out of uh, uh, some newspapers. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's one where I didn't do any personal interviews with anyone. Everything came out of old documents, old newspapers. Yeah. It's told in such a great, engrossing way. And, and I just wonder, well, I don't know, like, I wonder about the sensationalism uh, back in the, you know, those days or if it had anything to do with the time of year or anything or, or if it was... Uh, just one of those things where they, they report it and then they move on and never go back to it, you know? That seems to be the case. Uh, I, I didn't see any follow-up stories, so that makes me wonder, well, was this just a one-off event? Did it ever happen again? Did anyone ever figure out what happened? We just sort of have to kind of wonder. <laughs> do you know if that building is still standing or do you think it's probably torn down by now? Well, it's actually gone. And the only reason I know that is, is I had a book signing at Cincinnati back in October, and I realized that that building would have only been a street or two away from where I was. Mm -hmm. hmm. So it was on the, the corner. It was on a street corner. Uh, my wife went and looked. She said it was no longer there. There was a modern building there. Yeah. That's too bad, because if there had been an old building, I would have loved to have gone in and just said to anyone I could find, so... Any weird Never stuff? Anything strange here, especially on the third floor. Yeah. Hmm. You got to wonder. 
uh, stuff like that, I guess it doesn't, uh, doesn't really last in, in modern times. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder if like in 50 years or a hundred years, if, if, you know, these buildings are still standing, if people are going to be like, oh, there was somebody in a tank top and a backwards baseball cap that kept <laughs> keep staring at me from the stairs. <laughs> well, ghosts wear the clothing that they wore in life. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and apparently some of them change with the fashion. So maybe some of them are wearing uh, parkas. Who knows? Maybe um, so. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Kevin, are you working on anything uh, right now? Any new books? Yes, as a matter of fact, I'm uh, proofreading the galleys for my next book. It's coming out from Indiana University in September, and uh, I've been doing regional books, Midwestern, Kentucky, New England. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a book from the Western, uh, sorry, a collection of stories from the Western states. Oh, yeah? It's called Weird Wild West. Wow. What states are you focusing on, like Arizona, New Mexico kind of stuff? Yeah, uh, pretty much everything out west except California, because California already has its own book called Creepy California. Mm. There were so many stories from there, it just needed its own book. (laughs) Have you come across anything about the Lost Dutchman gold mine? I've heard about it, and I've read about it. I I didn't put anything about it in the book, though, because Uh. it's already been written about so much, I couldn't think of anything new to say about it. Well, that's that's the truth, I guess. (laughs) A lot of this stuff, yeah, a lot of this stuff has, but I think in particular, your books uh, do a great job of bringing to light a lot of stuff that hasn't been talked about, especially, like I said, the Whitehall and the Stockton Ghost and, you know, that that sort of stuff, which is very refreshing, especially, you know, it, I grew up in the area, like I said, like I told you, and I had no idea there were haunted houses in Richmond, and I, I've been to Richmond quite a few times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Would have been nice to know and go visit. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, that's something I'm kind of pleased with. The fact that uh, if you get one of my books, there's a lot of stories in it that I'm sure you've not heard before. A lot of uh, authors on this sort of thing, they just sort of copy what all the other authors have done. So you'll mm. buy a book and you'll get all the stories you've already heard before. But uh, most of the books I do have hundreds of stories because um, they tend to be fairly short. That's true. And most of them are, yeah, not very well publicized. So there's there's something new in there for you. Absolutely, and I think that's the advantage uh, that you have in particular, especially going through all that old microfilm and pulling the stuff directly from the source. Uh, a lot of people, like you said, rely on either other people's work or maybe uh, a quick visit to a place or something like that here and there. But yeah, I think the the work that you put into it absolutely shows. So I, I think people would would very much enjoy. Uh, reading your stuff and why don't you tell people where they can go to find more of your work and more importantly buy copies of their own okay yes that is very important (laughs) (laughs) well i I have a website kevinmcqueenstories.com if you go looking for it though remember my name is spelled k-e-v-e-n it has an odd spelling Uh, so you can find information on all of the books there where to purchase them you can get them from the publishers' websites, you can get them at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and places like that. And I also have a couple of sites on Facebook. There's Kevin McQueen, which is basically an author page, and there's Kevin D. McQueen, which is what I call my weird comedy page. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll have to make sure to look up uh, 
uh, your pages so I can swing a, a like your way. I know those are important. <laughs> yes, they are. They make life worth living. <laughs> that's right. And that's what I should start saying. At the <laughs> it's how we justify our existence now with how many likes we got. <laughs> oh, man. It's it's Black Mirror. I'll also uh, also make sure to put links to your uh, pages and your work uh, on the show notes for this episode. Oh, thanks. Uh, so people can go and visit and make sure they uh, get to the right place and get all this cool stuff. I'm always very happy to hear from people. So thank you. Excellent. Well, uh, Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, especially since I know classes have started back up recently. Well, you know... You don't start getting tons of papers until a little bit later. So <laughs> yeah, we wanted to catch it early. <laughs> yeah, this is the first week of class, so nothing really major has been handed in yet. That's good. Do you talk about this stuff much in class, or is it? Are you primarily one life and the Not other life? Really. Um, I, I usually don't even bring up the fact that I have books out. Mm. Students usually find that out on their own by surprise. Yeah. I don't know. Just somehow I can't seem to bring it up. <laughs> well. I guess it's better to not force it. It's more, uh, it holds more weight that way when it does happen. <laughs> Maybe so. I'm not sure how they'll react to it. So Maybe they'll catch this episode and then be like, hey, you didn't say this. <laughs> Maybe they will. Well, if they're, they're destined to find out, they'll find out. I guess so. <laughs> well, Kevin, uh, we'll have to get you back on sometime for another one of these books and, and some more fun stories in the near future. How about that? Thank you. I, I would love to come back. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks again, Kevin. Uh, again, Kevin McQueen. Check his stuff out. Check the show notes and find links to all uh, his works and everything. Thanks again, Kevin. Okay. Thanks, David. Thank you. My thanks again to Kevin for talking to me. Make sure to check out more of his work. I think you guys would dig it. Like I said, they're, they're interesting and they have a great dose of dry humor, which I appreciated. Uh, I think you guys, if you like the stuff that uh, that I bring you, which, I mean, why would you be listening if you didn't, um, <laughs> then I think you're going to like what uh, what he's written. So definitely give him a look. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are always appreciated, if you haven't yet. And subscribing on there is a great way to support the show. Like Blurry Photos on Facebook, follow on Twitter and Instagram, all of which you can find links to on blurryphotos.org. Please consider helping out on patreon.com slash blurry photos and or the donate button on the website and or coffee.com slash blurry photos, ko-fi.com. Special thanks to Sean for buying me a coffee on there. I appreciate that, Sean. Thank you. Hope everyone's doing well so far in 2019. For this episode of Blurry Photos, I have been David Floror in the Heartland. Till next time.